Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. You can find me on Facebook at Galen Trombley, on Instagram at Galen Trombley, and on YouTube at Galen Trombley. Spelling G-A-E-L-A-N-T-R-O-M-B-L-E-Y. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. Uh, welcome to episode 93 of the Galen Trombley Show. Uh, my guest today, you've probably seen him walking around uh, with a lantern, a top hat. Um, we'll go into his attire in a little bit, but uh, Matt, I'm going to pronounce it the way you, Matt, Matt Boyer. Yeah, you got it exactly I, right. I nailed it, Matt Boyer, because I had job. a cheat sheet here. Um, so Matt is the, just to get the formal uh, name, is the tour director of the Greater Adirondack Ghost and Tour Company. Um, the haunted history. And again, I, I see you especially right now. I think I look for you extra sharply as we get into October, just because of the spooky holidays and stuff that, uh, with Halloween that this is, I would think kind of like your Super Bowl month when it comes to like some of the haunted stuff. Uh, but Matt, for people who do not know you kind of give them a little background, how you got to 2020 Matt Boyer. Sure. Well, uh, firstly, I'm happy to be here. Uh, it's my pleasure to chat with you today. Uh, always fun to talk about the ghost tours, especially this time of year. <laughs> uh, like you said, this is our absolute busiest, well, normally, this is our absolute busiest uh, time of the year. It usually starts building, you know, September and into October is really our busiest time. So I am a local, uh, eighth generation North Country native. Uh, I've lived in Plattsburgh all my life, um, worked here in the community, uh, but I really got into doing the ghost tours about 15 years ago or so. Um, it started off as kind of a, a brainstorming session. A bunch of us got together and were doing things that we could do for uh, fundraising as, as volunteers for different organizations in, in the community and whatnot. And it really uh, sparked an interest, even just on the small scale. So after that, I really started looking at it at, from a point of view of how could we expand on this and make this into a real kind of uh, attraction for people to come out and experience something really interesting right, right in their own backyard, you know? So um, 10 years ago, uh, we started it as our own business. And uh, it really, really uh, took off. The first year, we did it just as an experiment for the month of October. Uh, this was in um, 2011. So nine years. Uh, this was 2011. We did uh, a series of tours in October in a local cemetery, and it was just packed. And the, the next year we said, well, if it was that successful just in October, how great would it be to get people out in the summertime, you know, on a beautiful evening and, and whatnot? So we started off with a second tour uh, that covered the downtown area in um, 2012, and that was really well received too, so... We've just been growing since then. Now we're up to five tours. So when you when you did the original tours, you you like I say it was just the one month. And mm -hmm. what was the original tour? What you said was the gravesite. Yeah, it took place in uh, cemetery. I should say. Sure, it took place in Riverside Cemetery. Mm -hmm. uh, we gave a, a series of tours in there. Um, so that was our first attempt. So so. I mean, history, were you a history major or did you just always love history? Because again, most of the stuff is, is, you know, you're going back in historically, locally, and, and, you know, we'll kind of go into some, like, some of the stuff you talked about going back, knowing that you are, 
you know, eighth generation um, from North, the North Country. I don't even know how many generations I have. So <laughs> has history always been a, like a part of your life? If you, like as a kid, uh, either as an adult, did you go to college for that? Like there was history class in school, or high school, like that your jam? Sure. Well, I, I've always been fascinated by it. Uh, I think I really got bit by the bug of the Titanic when I was a kid. And that's kind of what sucked me in. And it just kind of grew from there. But I'd always been interested in more or less the storytelling aspect of it. Everybody in my family, my grandparents and whatnot, always seemed to be great storytellers. You know, they they spoke about their life experiences in the past, obviously, with all of this flair and passion uh, uh, and, and interesting stories. So it just kind of must have piqued my interest because if you can tell history, stories about the past in, in the way of a, of a tale, of a story, of a life experience that people can relate to, and that they can put themselves in their shoes. I mean, it really makes it fascinating and eye-opening. And it makes you connect with that past in a different way than than school, than reading it in a book. You know what I'm saying? So when you started this, were you, were you doing anything history-wise, work-wise? Or was this just a straight hobby? It was like, hey, I just have a lot of knowledge. I've read a lot. I've researched a lot of the area. And I mean, was that where it started? Just, hey, hobby, I think it would be cool to offer to people. Yeah, uh, at the time, uh, I was working for the city of Plattsburgh, the Department of Public Works. Okay. Uh, I was a maintenance and groundskeeping uh, um, worker and took care of a lot of the city parks and, and uh, properties and whatnot, mowing lawns and raking leaves and things like that. And there's plenty of time to think with jobs like that. And, uh, you know, you get to really appreciate the places in the city that maybe not everybody, you know, they drive by them every day, but they don't really see them, you know. And one of the places where I was kind of the, the, the caretaker, more or less, uh, was the old post cemetery on the base. I used to take care of the property around the airplanes, the Clyde Lewis Park. And you really get in a, like an affinity for these places. And uh, I, I started doing the ghost tours while I was working at the city. So it just kind of, you know, when I was growing up, we did a lot of traveling. Uh, up and down the East Coast, mostly in a lot of places like Gettysburg, for instance. Mm -hmm. And uh, Gettysburg, just for example, they have over a dozen tours you can take there on any given night, walking tours, ghost tours. And that's really kind of their bread and butter. And I said to myself, even even as a young person, I said, if they can do that here, how come we can't do that in Plattsburgh? You know, they they had one battle in Gettysburg, you know, and look at how they capitalize on that and, and really make it a destination. So I really um, did a lot of brainstorming and, and um, thought of how we could adapt that to, to our area. So give us like a, I guess a little history of Plattsburgh. So, um, and it, we'll, we'll go more into stories and stuff, but um, what makes Plattsburgh a good place for ghost tours or, or just guided tours or whatever? Like, what was why when you said we can bring it back to Plattsburgh? I mean, obviously, I know we had battles. I mean, it was an older part of the country. Um, but like, what what exactly like brought you to the idea that hey, I can replicate the Gettysburg ghost tours or whatever locally? Well, that's a very good question. Um, up here in the North Country, we are kind of blessed with the depth of history that you don't find in a lot of places in America. Uh, I, I mean, it's just uh, layer after layer after layer from everything from, from you know, pre-contact with the Native Americans all the way up to, you know, the Cold War with the Plattsburgh Air Force Base. It's just layer upon layer upon layer. And um, anytime you seem to have those layers of the past, you always seem to have that other, you know, those, mm -hmm. those s stories or, or, or elements, those relics that are left behind. And, and whether that be 
paranormal or physical. You know, we, we do have, I mean, just for instance, just across the street from a train station, the train station where we are right now, there's a house with a cannonball stuck in the wall from the Battle of Plattsburgh. I mean, you can't go just anywhere and mm-hmm. see something like that. So we have those things right in our own backyard. And uh, for me, it's an honor to get to interpret those to the general public because it's not widely known. Uh, and, and especially our visitors that come here and get to see this amazing place that we call home. So again, I said my, like my wife has gone on the tours. I know some people have gone on it and she, I mean, she came back from the tour, like raving about it. She loved it. And she was like the stories and she goes, I can't know. She's trying to like tell me, of course she's saying now secondhand from what you're saying and trying to remember, but she was like, you know, that building here, you know, that there, you know, that there. And I think she did the one right down by right down here, bridge street and Macomb. And, um, like, the amount of stuff that she was coming back with, and again, she's lived here her whole life and didn't know about it. And I'm sure I don't know probably 99% of what you talk about because, again, I, I live here, but I, I didn't know there was a cannonball in one of the, <laughs> one of the buildings. And it's, I probably drive by it or walk by it every single day. So, it's literally right across the street. <laughs> so when you when you talk about, like, when like what's your most of your themes? So you have five tours. So tell us what the tours are. Okay, sure. Um we have our downtown tour, which you mentioned uh, that your wife attended. That one's called Dr. Beaumont's Tour of Terror. <laughs> Each one of them has a great name. <laughs> uh, and the thing that I like to stress about our tours is that they're all factual. You know, you hear this, the phrase, the truth is stranger than fiction. Some of these stories, you couldn't make them up if you wanted to. They're so bizarre, you know, uh, real life stories that are just strange and unusual and really kind of captivate the listener. Well, um, so we put about six months worth of work into each tour as far as research and plotting out a route. And, and so there's, there's a lot of, of development that goes into each, each event. And you multiply that across five tours, you kind of get an idea for how much, you know, effort it takes. We have Dr. Beaumont's Tour of Terror that follows in the footsteps of a 19th century um, physician that lived here in Plattsburgh that had some interesting proclivities as far as uh, one of his patients is concerned. And he lived right here. We visit the site of his office. We visit some sites where he would have um, been familiar with and talk about different tales uh, along the way. And is that the Beaumont from Plattsburgh State? That's correct. Same guy. Okay. Same guy. The science department. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So, sorry, keep going. Sure. And uh, let's see, number two, we have uh, the Specters and Soldiers Cemetery Tour. Uh, that is a tour that covers the old Roman Catholic cemetery and the adjoining uh, site of Fort Brown, which is a fort from the Battle of Plattsburgh, the ruins of it that are still there. Um, we have the Ghosts of the Old Post, which takes place... Um, on the former Plattsburgh Air Force Base, covers that vicinity and some of the stories out there. Uh, we visit the Post Cemetery, uh, talk about some of its residents. Um, let me see. We have uh, the Spirits of SUNY Plattsburgh, which is our college campus tour. And that one covers some of the sites up at uh, SUNY and um, the surrounding neighborhood. And then our newest one, which we introduced uh, a year or two ago, is called the Dead of Delord's Point. Yeah, and that one takes place uh, in the neighborhoods around the Kent Lord House over on Cumberland Avenue. Uh, that's actually one of the oldest uh, oldest neighborhoods in Plattsburgh. Yeah, right there. Yeah, right yep. across the river. Yep. Yep, and uh, uh, some of the original settlers, you know, established themselves there in the, the early, early days of Plattsburgh. So a lot of layers there, too. 
So when, when you, what goes into deciding one of these? Like what, where do you decide the route or what you want to focus on? Or, you know, do you have plans to add more tours? Oh, absolutely. I've got this uh, notebook <laughs> where anytime I get an idea, I just kind of feverishly jot it down. Uh, tons and tons of ideas, uh, you know, in the wings. But um, five tours, it's a lot to manage for, for one small staff of people. So uh, we're, we're kind of good with what we're at for right now, but we're always looking at expanding more uh, into uh, even the surrounding Adirondack region. So, so when you, but like, okay, so let's take Dr. Mo- Beaumont. Mm-hmm. Um, when you start figuring out that, or you, the one by Kent to Lordhouse or SUNY Plattsburgh, like what attracts you to... Like, what's your mindset? If we strip it all the way back, like, where, where's the start? Like, how did Dr. Beaumont start? Like, just that in general. Was it like, I'm just reading history and I see that this building's connected to this building? Because at the end of the day, you're a storyteller. Mm-hmm. So you're connecting all these stories and all this history and you're following a path. And you're like, it's a, I would think some type of journey through this historic area or era of wherever that place is. Where, like, how's the thought start? You get a thought in your head, jot it down. Then where do you go from there to develop the full tour? Well, first, it it, uh, it starts with an area that I just, just with my background and my expertise, uh, you know, something clicks and, and I say to myself, man, this is a really interesting area. This would be a great spot for a tour. And, and in order to do that, it has to meet a couple of criteria, I guess, that I've come up with in my in my head. Firstly, it has to have enough material, like meat and potatoes, where it would facilitate entertaining a group of people for an hour and 15 minutes. And the sites themselves can't be too far away because you're, you're walking, don't forget, and you can't have all of these dead spaces in the tour where you tell one story and then you walk for 20 minutes. You know? So you have to have a, a relative proximity of uh, interesting sites and uh, interesting stories. And then uh, it kind of, once you get the skeleton, or excuse my pun, <laughs> once you get the skeleton in place, uh, you know, it kind of, um, it, it builds itself organically from there. You, you have to come up with a common theme that kind of ties it all together. Uh, even if the stories aren't all from the same date or same era, you, you know, you should have a, a common thread mm-hmm. that kind of runs through the thing. So like what, what's, I mean, can you go into a little bit, like what's the themes of each of the ones that you talk about? So you have like Dr. Beaumont would mm-hmm. he, him himself would be the theme of the tour, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're basically following more or less in his footsteps, like a, like a time traveler. So, so then, so then like Plastic State is just, the theme is something that happened within the campus, mm-hmm. but is it like a certain time period? Are we talking just the historic aspect of Plastic State? Since it's, I mean, when did Plastic State, was it? 17, 1800s it started? Late 1800s. I okay. think it was 1889 was when it was established. So you're just talking like the, the total history, but it could be 50 years between stories. Sure. Okay. Absolutely. But it's just the actual general theme there. Yeah. Some some of the stories we go back even into the, the, the Native American cultures and uh, talk about their folklore and, and their, their superstitions and things. So it, it all adds to it. And, and when you say ghost tour, there's obviously the, the element of supernatural ghosts like that in every single one of the tours. Mm-hmm. Is it, so that's something you try to draw out in each of the, is that one of your criterias too? It's got to have a little spookiness factor. Oh, sure. Sure. All, all the call, all the stories are kind of uh, off color. I guess you could say like they're, they're the stories that people are interested in, but they won't admit it. The murders, <laughs> the hangings, the, you know, all, all the, 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 uh, Things that happen in the dark of the night. Like the tabloid things that can make, you know, like they can make sure. the front page. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, so 
right now, which one is your most popular tour? Or maybe gets the most visitors for that tour? It always seems like whenever we come out with a new one, it's, a, That's you it. know, because we get tons of um, people that get hooked on our tours and they keep coming back and back until they've done all five. And then they say, okay, when are you coming out with a new one? So there's always this mass of people waiting in the wings after nine years that whenever I come out with a new one, boom, it's, it's mobbed. So, so how often do you come out with a new tour? I try to do one every couple of years, at least, you know, at, just keep at a adding minimum. to it. Yeah. You said it takes about six months of solid research and yeah. development. And yeah, I do a lot of that during the winter time, uh, during kind of our off season. I mean, I'm available for doing tours, private tours at any point. People can schedule a tour, but we, we don't do a regular events in, in the winter months usually. So where, where do you get your research from? Anywhere, everywhere and anywhere. Uh, I do a lot of oral interviews with people. Uh, you get those the oral history. Uh, newspapers are really good from the period. Um, books, you know, magazines. Basically, you know, you cast a wide net and anything and everything. So you just, it's kind of like a scavenger hunt. You just keep picking these up. And do you get excited? I think being someone of like that likes history, like when you find like a, a book that you might happen to find at some, I mean, again, there's a lot of places in Plattsburgh. You might find it in a basement for all we know. You just pull up this book and start reading it. Like, oh my God, here's a journal from someone from 18 something, or here's a, you know, a book that came out in the early 1900s and you're kind of flipping through it and you're like, wow, there's a ton of history in these books. And then does that one that must excite you. So you must read a lot. Um, and then do you just take that in? And then it, that again, if it adds to the story, it's gotta be like a goal, like a jackpot, right? Yes to everything you said. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Maybe that gets you excited, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, that 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 really gets gets you going when you, you know, you've got this story that you've maybe heard or you've heard a reference to it or, or some tantalizing little clue, and you go chasing it down the rabbit hole, and, and you're searching and searching and you're trying all these different angles until finally you find that firsthand account or that you know it's like striking gold. You know, it's uh, it's really hard to describe. Um, because a lot of the material that we look for is stuff that was written down by, by chance or, or some passing reference to this or that event that happened. And, you know, it's stuff that you wouldn't normally find in, in any book, you know, especially the oral history when it's, you know, told from generation to generation, oh, this happened to my great grandfather. And, uh, you know, it was never written down. That's the things that really get me excited. It's those little hidden gems. So how... How much of a of a story, or how much of a maybe I don't want to call a rumor, but like I guess like a story, like it's passed down. Like how much of that do you have to fact check or make sure that it's real? Is it like, hey, I got to make sure I have all the knowledge, or is there still like a little element of you like the storytelling? Like maybe the you talk about like Native Americans, they were big storytellers and passing on. It wasn't written down; it was just talk generation to generation. So it's almost almost like the train game. The story could kind of lose some of the details, but the general themes there is some of that. Like, hey, that's good enough. We like having that little element of storytelling mixed in with really big like firsthand accounts that are just very factual. Is it kind of a mixture? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you you got to make sure it's a good balance of, uh, you know, dramatic license for, for the uh, the storytelling aspect of it. But you always want to make sure that your facts are factual, you know, especially when you're dealing with historical events like we have here in Plattsburgh, like mm -hmm. the battle. It, you know, if you're talking about a specific regiment of troops that were here, you need to know, obviously, the numbers, the, the you know, the um, specific information re regarding 
any any of these events that we talk about. So so when it comes to like research, I mean, how how often do you are you researching? I mean, is this like every day you're always trying to just find new things of history that you can just dig up? All the time, all the time. So sometimes uh, I'll I'll just um, get get a, a a passing interest in something. Something will just spark my interest, and I'll just get fixated on that. And as I said, just start chasing that story down the rabbit hole until I get to the bottom of where it started, who that story came from. And what the actual experience was, I, I love doing that stuff. Really, the, the 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 chase is what does it for me. So, so if you're talking mostly Plattsburgh here, we're we're going back to how how far back do you typically go? Like, are you talking 1700s? Because one was, I mean, I know Plattsburgh came about in 1804, roughly. No, Plattsburgh goes back to the 1780s. Like the uh, actual was, township or the city? Yeah. Okay. Was, yeah, I I think it was around 1784 was when um, Zephaniah Platt started organizing things and, and getting uh, the original settlers together. And then they came up here and, and uh, well, carved the town out of the wilderness, basically. So where was he from? He was from, uh, well, he, he was down around um, southern New York. His brothers, like, for instance, there, there was three brothers. There was Charles, Nathaniel, and Zephaniah Platt. Uh Nathaniel came from Long Island. I mean, they were in a couple different places. Um, Nathaniel was involved with the the revolution uh, down in Long Island. So um, Zephaniah Platt was a judge. So they were very involved individuals. And the the way that it transpired was after the revolution, the government didn't have a lot of money to pay their soldiers. I mean, we were just getting started as a nation. So they offered land grants to a lot of these uh, soldiers in, in lieu of of paying them for their service. So Judge Zephaniah Platt and his brothers kind of came up with this idea that they could organize a lot of these land grants together. They could buy them off from some of these soldiers that weren't going to use them or weren't going to go plan to go up into the wilderness and, and claim this land. So they were able to amass somewhere in the neighborhood of 30,000 acres. And that included, you know, what is the city today, the town, parts of Cumberland Head, uh, they they had a huge land grant, and um, they came up here, and there was there was stipulations from the government. They had to build a sawmill. They had to build, you know, to yeah. to technically call it a town. So they came up here and they got to work, started chopping down trees, and and, and really forming the basis of the community. So so where did he live? Did Ze- he live? Zephaniah yeah, Platt. Yeah, he came up here, and he initially, uh, I believe, he initially settled out on. Cumberland Head, and then later moved into the village proper. He had a house that was on what we call J Street today. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an apartment building there. You're talking uh, about but, the blue one right down here? No, it's if you go around the curve, it's kind of a wood-sided place. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, yep. r- right across from where the bike path yep. is. Yep. Yeah, there's a historic marker there that tells you that that was once the site of uh, Zephaniah Platt's homestead. So, um, so he comes up, and, and, and like again, we're talking, like where we are right now is the oldest part of Plattsburgh, right? Yeah, one of one of all of these areas along the lake shore obviously would have been settled first. Yeah, yep. Uh, because you know the river offered inroads, uh, but closest to the lake that was their highway. That was their the super highway of the day. So uh, that would have um, um, that would have uh, allowed them to to transport you know in and out goods and and materials that they needed to build the community. So it grew from the lake west. So. Um- so he moved up, and when he settled up here, it, I mean, does he play a big part in any of your stories? 
Zebediah? It's it's a, it's always a weird name. It's with a ph. Zephaniah. Zephaniah. I, I yeah. know it's always a z, but I can never pronounce it. So Zephaniah Platt. I mean, does he factor into a lot of these, or is he just like, hey, he's the guy that settled here? But most of most of the stuff that he did was early on, and then he kind of fizzed out, and then like the the town really kind of grew, or city kind of grew up. He was kind of the figurehead. He was kind of the organizer. Uh, he came up here later. He wasn't up here. I don't think chopping wood or anything like that. He was a judge. He was mm-hmm. a you know. Uh, involved in in politics and things like that. So he didn't strike me as as one that took on more of the hands-dirty aspect of it. He was more of the organizer. His brothers, however, uh, his two brothers that he got on board, uh, Charles came up here and made a homestead uh, really early on. He built a house that was uh, in the vicinity of where the express lane is today on Broad Street. That's where his his log cabin was, basically. And uh, his brother, Nathaniel, uh, Nathaniel was older and he was a surveyor by trade. So that's pretty important if you're yeah, going to be building yeah. a new town. So Nathaniel got the job of laying out a lot of the original roadways, which many are still in use today. Yeah. So uh, like how many roads roughly in Plattsburgh, and we'll just talk about the city, like are, are still in effect today, still named the same, still have the same kind of pathway. Cause I know there's an old map that I always look at and Cornelia streets on there. And oh, like, sure. so like how many, what do you think, like what are some major streets in Plattsburgh that have, have been around basically 250 years a lot of them basically a lot of your core streets downtown really date back from that era um you know and a lot of the names have interesting backstories too we include a lot of those on our tour who they're named for why they're called that um you know like you mentioned cornelia street there was a a woman who was married into the smith family the smith family they had an estate a house that was right where uh, the Strand Center for the Arts is today. That's where their house was. So they owned a lot of that property. So Margaret Street and Cornelia Street were women who were in that family. So they got named after those people. And like you know? I'm assuming Brinkerhoff was probably last name of somebody. Abraham Brinkerhoff. Yeah, yeah. He was a he was a reverend and he was a farmer that owned a lot of that land. So a lot of the people that owned them owned the property got to kind of pick who it got named after. So there's these interesting backstories, as I said. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating history stuff that we drive by every day and, and never really think twice about. So, so when you look at like a map and you're like this guy, you know, um, Charles Platt built with the express lane, like <laughs> where, where, like where do you find that kind of stuff? Is this like old maps or is this just, or just historical accounts of like, I, you know, I was on the corner of, Broad Street and Oak Street, and then he like made mention of that, or is this one where you know is there old maps that actually have like the plot plans of people that lived and what houses were there? Well, it's it's kind of like a like a like a detective story, you know. You start off with a firsthand account, like oh, Charles Platt made his homestead such and such a location, and then you'll skip forward to maybe a historical book that was published in the, the 1800s, you know, skip forward a hundred years and they'll say, Oh, Charles Platt's homestead was at the site of the something, something house, you know? So then you, you look where that house was and, Oh, that was torn down in 1977, you know, and they replaced it with this structure. And then you can kind of bring it to the present day and you can find out exactly where these places were. Do, do you ever wish you could go back in time and just see this all happen that like, live in front of you yeah like just like time machine jump back see eight seven or see 1780 and then jump up to 1812 and like imagine being here like i know it sounds crazy but like sitting on bluff point like watching the battle of plattsburgh 
Wouldn't that be fantastic? I mean, it'd I mean, be it, wild. Just mind-blowing. I mean, people don't realize that the expanse of events that have taken place, it, it's, it's really mind-boggling to think that these settlers had front-row seats to all of these, the, these basically events that forged our nation for, you know, for its early existence. The Battle of Plattsburgh, the Battle of Valcor, I mean, events that, that really changed the fates of soldiers and the Revolution and the War of 1812. They happened right at our doorstep. And people left firsthand accounts like, yeah, I sat there and I watched the smoke for two and a half hours while the ship, ships, you know, engaged one another right out here in the bay. And it's it's uh, it plays out like like a movie, really. How how many bat how many battles were in Plattsburgh? Was there two, three, or was there more? Well, like, there was the the Battle of Plattsburgh, which yep. you could kind of break down. There was the land battle and the naval battle, mm-hmm. which were happening kind of simultaneously at the end. But uh, then there's also the Battle of Valcor, which took place in 1776 uh, with mm-hmm. Benedict Arnold. You know, there's a name that yeah. doesn't have a good connotation, but he, but but he was a good guy. He at was the time. a good guy then, yeah. yeah. Uh, you, you know, and the, there's an anniversary coming up with that in a few years. Uh, so there was there was a lot of engagements and skirmishes around here over the years. So when um, the Battle of Alcor, that was obviously Revolutionary War yes. time. Is that was that the only battle in Plattsburgh at that time prior to War of eighteen twelve? I believe so. Like major yeah. battles, I major would say. There's battles. probably some skirmishes yeah. and like yeah, little major like, battles. Sure. Yeah. Um, so when they talk about raising up, was it the Spitfire? Is that the one that's still down, or is that the one they brought up? Oh, you're you're going deep there. That's I know, good. like a little bit. I, I want sure. to pick your brain because you're way better at this than me. I love <laughs> to hear your your interpretation of oh, this stuff. Great stuff. Great stuff. Uh, in the 1930s, they there was a guy named uh, Lorenzo Hagland. What a name, Colonel <laughs> Lorenzo Hagland, and he uh, used to vacation up here and have summers up here. And he got really interested in the early American history, the naval battles around Valcor and whatnot. So uh, he was a military man, and he took some excursions by boat out to Valcor. And this we're talking in the 1930s, 20s, 30s. And uh, he saw that there was wreckage still out there on the island. The, the, the hulk of the Royal Savage, which was one of Arnold's ships, was still run up and had sunk in shallow water right there by the island. So he got fascinated by this stuff. Wow. And he had some expertise. So he said, you know, I, what a thing it would be if I could bring these up to the surface. So using kind of primitive techniques, what we would consider primitive today, there, there wasn't really any, any rules for this kind of stuff back then. He was able to haul the wreckage of the Royal Savage up on land. And a few years later, he using grappling hooks and things like that, he was able to locate the wreck of a, of a gunboat that was still under uh, the water in the strait there between Valcor and the mainland. And it was still sitting on the bottom, mast, upright, cannons, everything. And we're talking divers with the, the helmets. Like you think of oh, the yeah. hard hat divers. They would go down and... Uh, like 20,000 leagues under the sea exactly, kind of stuff. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yep. And uh, they were able to locate this this vessel that was still intact, sitting on the bottom. And they raised it. They brought it up. Um, and uh, Hagland recovered all these artifacts from it and, and uh, had it on display for a while uh, on a barge that they would float up and down Lake Champlain. Uh, they had it parked at Fort Ticonderoga for a while, but um, many, many, many years later, uh, the the uh, when when Hagelin passed away, the uh, Philadelphia, which was the name of the gunboat, it ended up in the Smithsonian, and it's still there today. It's the only surviving Revolutionary War era vessel 
in, in the United States. It's, it's in the wow. Smithsonian. It's, it's amazing. You can see it. You can look at it online. Uh, it's that's quite the, incredible. That's the Philadelphia? The Philadelphia. Now, her sister ship, I guess you could call it, very similar vessel called the Spitfire, is still down there. Um, and she's been explored and documented and whatnot. And I believe that there's plans in place where somewhere, some, at some point in the future, there might be long-term plans to maybe bring her up as well. That And I, like fairly recently by the, the thing I saw, it was like 2023 or 25 or yeah. something. It was like, I mean, now it's a couple years away. Yeah. Um, but when you talk about the guy found it in what, the 1930s, you said? The Philadelphia, yeah. Yeah, so you're talking 150 about 150 years. Oh no, uh, that was yeah, Revolutionary War, right? You said the the battle was in 1776. Yeah, so you're talking 150, 60 years that this boat was just sitting there, obviously. But then they bring it up and it's still intact, which is crazy. Yeah, I mean, it still had there. There was, um, you know, bones from from the last meal that they cooked on board that were still there. Bricks from the fireplace, the little cook area that they had on board. Cannons. Uh, accoutrements, things that had gotten buried in the silt that was inside the hall. I mean, just incredible uh, state of preservation. So would that be a location potentially you could venture out to at some point? Like the like the Bluff Point, the Valcor, obviously depending on the travel and the access to the water, but or even like a, a ghost tour on, on Valcor. Is that possible? Probably a little hard to walk around, but... Well, it's it's state land, so that throws up a whole other okay, series right. of, yeah. of, of, you know things but um valcor is an interesting place uh, it's got its own whole history with you know camps that were out there and there was a farming and there was a, a community out there at one point so that all of these little areas are just kind of microcosms there's just great history all so over this is stuff i mean obviously you, you know you're a big history guy so five five tours is just scratching the surface of like yes. the area that you know and would eventually like to potentially get in and um, you know, turn into these tours and, and hopefully like have their catalog grows and grows and grows for many years. Yeah, sure. Should that be the plan? Yeah, we, we've had uh, other communities that have even reached out to our business that have said, hey, we'd love for you to come up to where we are and do what you're doing in Plattsburgh, you know, put together a ghost tour and, and you know, that are actively seeking us out. So it's it's a lot of fun. It's, it's a lot of, uh, you know, just amazing. So, well, so to go back to the, so the, you're called the Greater Adirondack Ghost and Tour Company. Yes. Now you did you found you founded that right? Yeah. And so this is just something that came up brainchild of yours that you've been working on. I see that it says business partner Wendy. That yep. Is yep. Wendy Crib. She uh, is my girlfriend, but she also okay. handles all of the marketing aspects of the business. She handles all the creative design work as far as our brochures and our advertising content. Uh, she she's. Uh, a huge, huge uh, asset. So, so is it you and Wendy? Is that is basically the company's you and Wendy? We okay. have uh, from time to time we've had other tour guides come on board uh, during our busy season, like during Halloween and stuff like that. Just as far as uh, crowd control, mm-hmm. obviously safety is our number one priority. So we want to make sure that we have people carrying lanterns, like at the beginning and the end of the group, and uh, you know things yeah. of that nature. So. Um, so I guess in a normal time, and you do these tours throughout the year, right? So it's like, you talk like winter, probably a little harder because of the snow, but you have the summer tours. Do you do stuff like what, what's really your season when you're open? Spring, summer, and fall. We start, usually we shoot for the last 
weekend of April or the first weekend of May, depending on how things are progressing with the, the mud and mm-hmm. the, you know, uh, the change of the seasons. So if the weather's really good, last weekend of April, we're, we're going. And we go full steam ahead right through midsummer. You know, once the kids are out of school, things really kind of pick up mm-hmm. as far as families doing vacations. And, and, and uh, we also do bus tours where uh, we do step-on tour guide services for coach buses, wow, okay. uh, tours that are coming in and out of the area where they, they call us up ahead of time and said, hey, we're going to be in Plattsburgh or in the North Country on such and such a date. What can you put together for us? Or do you have a tour guide that can come on our bus and give us an impromptu kind of you know tour? So we do that as well. Uh, and we keep trucking right through uh, late summer and into the fall. And obviously, of course, Halloween is our biggest yeah. time of the year. And we keep pushing it. If the, if the weather holds, we'll go through Halloween and into early November, right until Mother Nature says, no, that, that's it. So, so, so like how, in a, in a, I guess in a given, and you're talking one, you're talking seven days a week, or what's your, what's your hours really? We do usually two tour nights a week, um, two tours in the evening. So we do um, Fridays and Saturdays, 7 o'clock and 9 o'clock p.m., and then private tours by appointment. Sometimes I do tours all week long, depending on how it plays out with people doing, you know, private events. So when you, you so every time you do a tour, it's two two separate tours. And when you put on the schedule, like how do people book? They got you know you have five different tours. You just kind of plan them out ahead of time. Like okay, so you said what were the two tour dates? Tuesday and Friday. Uh, Friday and Saturday, seven oh, fr- and, seven and nine. Okay, I missed second. Okay, so, so Friday it's and four tours a weekend. And, and are they all four different tours? Yep. Each one is a different tour, and then the fifth one is kind of the oddball, so we kind of interchange it out, you know, just to give it some diversity. But um, what we usually do is we do four different tours, so somebody could theoretically hit all four in a weekend if they wanted to. And that's your main one. So the new, the newest one you said is the Kent Lord House one. It's the, the, the dead of Delord's Point. Okay. So that one, we kind of start off on the south side of the river, and that's where the tour meets, and we go across the footbridge, yep. and we use the footbridge as kind of like a like a like a an element of the story. So you're not only passing over the river in a physical sense; you're you're passing over the river into the past, into Plattsburgh's oldest neighborhood, and this is what you're hearing, this is what you're seeing, this is what you're smelling. You know, we try to really paint that picture and make it almost like an experience into the past. Okay, so you're you're setting the stage of like this is what it would have looked like back in when the story was done. Like these this this building was down and this was more open and these trees weren't here and like kind of giving an idea of like you said painting kind of a vision of the past in a 2020 world, but giving them the idea that like the Kent the Lord House was here, but none of these houses were here and this was just all like hillside that dropped to the water and then like the monument wasn't there and then like that kind of like the, the picture you're setting? Sure, absolutely. Um, I, I like to make it very, very visceral. You know, like I said, paint a picture as, as far as what these people would have been experiencing if they were standing on these exact footsteps 200 years ago. What you're seeing, what you're smelling, what you're hearing, you know, and really kind of transport them, you know, for the briefest of instance, maybe into that past of so long ago. So when you're doing this, like what's the average amount of people per tour roughly, or do you have a cap on it? Like how many people can go on the tour? Usually our, our regularly scheduled evening tours, you're talking around 20 people, give or take. But, uh, when we get really busy, uh, towards the fall, they, they start getting into the, you know, 30, 40, fifties. 
We have actually had tours where we've done private events that have been scheduled where we've had upwards of 80 people before. <laughs> That's crazy. So are you up? You don't speak with a mic though, right? You just talk. I am a human microphone. <laughs> I was going to say, like you had a good, like your voice projects. So obviously yeah. I'm sure you, you raised a little bit, but yeah. people can hear you. Yeah. I, I have over the past nine years, I have converted myself into a human loudspeaker. So, um, I make it a point to make sure that everybody can hear me even at the back of the group. And a big part of it is your, your, your prep work. Cause as the tour guide, your brain has to constantly be thinking 10 steps ahead. You're not just telling the story. The story is kind of there. That's the constant, but in your mind, you're working on, okay, here's the number of people I have. How do I need to arrange them when we stop so that everybody can see me? Where's my line of sight at? Everybody can hear me, you know, uh, and you're constantly, having all these factors going through it's your all mind. all the nuances that we, exactly. we don't, we would never know watching you. We're just yep. like, this guy knows what he's doing. So, <laughs> so what, so tell me about the outfit. So I've always seen you as the guy walking around looking like Abraham Lincoln. You got, I, we'll take a photo before we leave and I'll, we'll post it, but you got like the chin strap going on, which seems like a very like 1800s look. Sure. Sure. It's um, the, the mutton chops. The mutton chops. Yeah. So what is, what is the idea with the outfit? Explain your outfit to people who have never seen you. And then I mean, was it Lincoln that was the, the person that gave you the idea for it? Or is he just kind of, or is this like a Dr. Beaumont look or like what? Go? It's, it's funny. If, if I had a, a, a dime for every, every time somebody asked if I was Abraham Lincoln or was driving by in their cars, hey, it's Abraham Lincoln, you know, I, I'd be a very, very rich man. But, um, you know, that was the attire that everyone wore, just like everyone wears a baseball cap or a, you know, a, a hoodie today. It was that was what the, the, the style of the time was. So I represent uh, not anyone in particular, just a gentleman of the era, you know, of, of the 1850s or, or thereabouts. And I, I like to try and keep my look kind of as historically accurate as possible, but also give it that kind of gothic kind of look that was popular then, you know, like kind of a, a Vincent Price kind of a thing or, or, uh, or uh, Edgar Allan Poe, I guess is more appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. The, yeah. So, I mean, it just, and, and you're, how tall are you? About six foot. I was going to say. Five, ten, five, twelve. Cause you look pretty big. I mean, granted the hat obviously adds, adds, you know, a foot maybe at least, but it's just like when you walk around, you just seem like a big presence. Cause I, again, I, I'll see you, especially if I'm leaving the office or I'm probably catching your first tour, hmm. but you'll see like out with the lantern, you'll see groups of people. And it's just cool to see because it's like something different and people are out like exploring and, and learning history. And I loved history growing up because like you said the storytelling element, um, I was lucky to have very good uh, history teachers that just, they could tell a story and like they just captivated you and you're just like you were in it and American history and global history and all these things. And um, so outfit wise, like I said, so you're dressed up, and again, I'm just going to paint the picture. I think you look like Abraham Lincoln, but it, it <laughs> for but lack it, of a better, it, yeah. So if, I guess if you want to like go watch the movie Lincoln, you're very similar. <laughs> you have a lantern. Um, we were joking that my wife said, "Well, I was the one that always holds the lantern," and sure. then you had said, "Well, that she's one of thousands that probably yeah. have held this lan these lanterns." But um, so, um, okay, so we're going down through. We're, we're doing the whole tour. You talk about the site. You talk about the line of sight. You talk about like kind of the element of trying to keep the, the crowd subdued. But when you're going through and talking subdued. about <laughs> subdued, you know, maybe like, you know what I mean? Like not getting too rowdy. They want to make sure they hear you. Cause at the end of the day, it's kind of like a museum tour. Like you're going through and you want people to hear you. And obviously I'm sure you have times where there's people in the back that are acting up a little bit and like, Hey, quiet down kind of thing. We want to hear. Um, but as you're going through, like how long did the, it's an hour and 15 minutes, but as people like 
walk through the streets. I mean, is it pretty well, I mean, there's sidewalks and stuff, but like, is it easy to navigate a group of 30 people through the city? Yeah. Is it kind of like a duck, know, duck with like ducklings? Like no, kind no, of, if, if you know what you're doing. It, it, at first, when I first started doing this, there, there's kind of a learning curve. You, you have to figure out, you know, there, there's no manual that says, here's how to run a ghost tour. You know, it's, a lot of it is just kind of figuring out what works and, and uh, what works in specific situations. And you, as the tour guide, are center stage. You are the entertainment for these people for an hour and 15 minutes. So you have to set, you know, the, the pace, you have to set the, the um, you know, the schedule in your brain of, of how you want the tour to progress and, and kind of the tempo and, and the drama of it. So you there, there's really kind of elements of, of acting that go along with it as well. I've had people that ask me if I'm a teacher. I've had people that have asked me if I've had, you know, theatrical training or things like that. So there, a lot of those elements get incorporated. So, you, I mean, you obviously play up the part. And I mean, is there a, com- a comic element to it or a comedic element to it where you try to have fun and tell jokes and have stories? Definitely, and- definitely. You, you got to play on, because some of the stories are just silly. <laughs> you know, uh, so, some of them, um, you know, r- really get a get a laugh out of people. And, it, and um, well, there's, there's also some of them where you have to... Uh, they're kind of grotesque, so you have to kind of temper that with with a little humor or a little comedy, uh, just so that people don't uh, get get uh, frightened. <laughs> so, so if you take your average, because you you said, I mean, I and I checked, you have like thirty thousand people that follow you on on at least on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, thirty thousand people knowing about you. That's there's probably at least double or triple that or quadruple that or whatever that know about you. I mean, not everybody follows you on Facebook, but they know your tour. Um, where did most of your people come from? Are they mostly local? Are they mostly, like you said, guided trips that people come in off of people just passing through people that just randomly fall to plaza and like, what's going on tonight? Oh, here's a ghost tour. Let's go check it out. Where do you find that most of your, your customers come from or most of the, I guess the, the attendees, attendees. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. Um, basically all over the region. Uh, we've had guests from pretty much any point on the compass that you can think of around the, the Champlain Valley, Adirondack region, up into Canada, Vermont, um, you know, many thousands of people over the years now. But, it, you know, f- from a humble point of view, it always amazes me when people come up to me and, and, and I feel very, very uh, privileged and, and honored when people say, hey, I found out about your ghost tours I was really excited about it, and we drove up from Glens Falls just to have a bite to eat and go on one of your tours tonight. Wow. You know, that, that always amazes me. Or we came down from Montreal, or people say, well, this is this is better than the event I went on in New York City, you know, or, or something of that nature. It, uh, it, it really kind of makes me um, proud of, of what it's become, really. Well, I mean, it's your, like I said, it's your brainchild. You put all this effort and time into it, but it's also a passion of yours. So when you find other people that enjoy that, you're like, this is great. Like, you know, like if people appreciate, you know, and again, going into a world that maybe doesn't slow down enough to appreciate the old times and the history and everything else, it kind of allows you to strip down, have this kind of quiet, really just like focused group, but you're walking too. So I think that adds a little bit more um, interest than just sitting in a chair and being lectured at, even sure. though that might be, that might be, you know, still, still, um, was engaging for people depending on the content, but obviously walking around, especially when it's like Halloween and you got like the, the dampness and the, oh, the yeah. leaves and stuff and the crunch of the, the, the leaves, like it kind of adds the element of the mm-hmm. spooky, you know? And, yeah. um, so what is, if you don't mind sharing, can you give us like one, one or two, like kind of, I guess, spooky kind of stories that you would have, like what, what kind of stories would you tell? 
without giving too much of your tour away. <laughs> like anything that's like, or something, even if it's like, hey, I don't tell this story anymore, but here's a cool story that we used to tell about something in the area. Sure, sure. Well, just, just to touch on what you just mentioned briefly, one of the things that I really enjoy doing is working with school groups. We've worked with high school students, college students, uh, the Upward Bound program, uh, uh, you know, scout groups. And that's really, really rewarding because you see these young people that, that wouldn't necessarily know, you know, about things that have happened right down the street from where they live or, or where they've been growing up. And you see the light bulb come on, you know, you see it just click. And they were like, wow, this happened right here where we live. And I feel like in a way that kind of fosters a sense of, of pride and in your own hometown, you know, because unfortunately some of this stuff, it doesn't, it's either obscure or it doesn't get touched on in school, you know, so in some way, I think sometimes you get that attitude of like, well, nothing ever happened around here, you know. So to see that kind of reaction where they just light up and 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 uh, have this interest in our area and our home, you know, it, it's really rewarding. And I, that's one aspect of it that I really enjoy. Well, we weren't we weren't ever taught that. Like I was yeah. never taught about the history of Plattsburgh. I mean, I've done a little bit of research. I've re- I mean, probably not the best source, but you go on like Wikipedia and read some sure. stuff, and you find these like kind of piece together historical aspects or pe- certain people or, you know, to find out, like, I think they're doing the, the mural just up the street of the, you know, the astro was the astronaut that died on the challenge. Sure. Uh, uh, Columbia. Re- Columbia. Or the Columbia. That's it. So, and like, you don't realize like this, there's someone that came right from Plattsburgh that was like tied to obviously a tragedy, but it's still the idea that mm-hmm. it's kind of cool when you think of Plattsburgh's more connected than they th- people think. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay. So like, what would be like a typical story that you would tell on one of your tours? Like what, what can people kind of be, if they go on the tour, what could they expect? Well, let's see. I'm trying to actually, we'll actually make it easier. Sure. We're, we're in the station. Like mm-hmm. we got, do we have stories on the station? Oh, here's a good one. Here's a good one. Every April, we always do a special feature on our tours uh, and on our Facebook page uh, about the sinking of the Titanic. It's one of my interests from a uh, childhood, but it's neat because I found a way to incorporate it into the into the tours because there are actual links. There's seven or eight different links between the sinking of the Titanic and Plattsburgh. And people don't know that. So we do like a reveal, like every day for the anniversary of the week that it sailed, we'll reveal one interesting thing about a connection between Plattsburgh or the North Country and the sinking of this you know, one of the most famous maritime disasters in history. So one of them that ties in to the train station where we are right now, obviously the Titanic, it sank out in the North Atlantic. So people would want, might wonder, well, what could that possibly have to do with Plattsburgh, you know? But if you go back to that period, 1912, the White Star Line, after the disaster, chartered a ship to go out and collect the bodies that were still floating uh, at the scene, you know, and some of these remains have been floating for a week or more in, in the ocean. So some of them were, who were the, unfortunately the lower class passengers were embalmed at sea and, and buried at sea. But some of the wealthier passengers like John Jacob Astor, for instance, he was the wealthiest man on board. uh, Their bodies were recovered. A catalog was made of what was in their pockets and they were, put on ice basically and, and brought ashore. 
Well, they were brought ashore at uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, and transported by railroad to New York City or places south where they were going to be buried. The main railroad line from Halifax went to Montreal and from Montreal right through Plattsburgh. So the bodies of at least three of the victims that we know of, of the sinking of the Titanic, passed right by your front windows right here. So that's kind of spooky. Well, the, um, was it Astor was his last name? John Jacob Astor. Yeah, he was the wealthiest man aboard. Yeah, I actually looked, I, I, this was recently that I saw that. I don't even know where I, I was kind of one of those, go down the rabbit hole and then (laughs) something leads to the something. And, um, yeah, I read that he was, I I don't remember what his profession was, but he, I, millionaire. uh, Yeah. (laughs) That was his profession. Yeah. And he was, he was not an old guy, right? No, he was, he was in his forties, I think. Yeah. It was kind of scandalous because he had just married a, an extremely young wife. She was a teenager. So it kind of was uh, even frowned upon back then. So he and his wife took a prolonged honeymoon trip over to uh, Europe. And they were gone for quite some time. But they booked passage back after the clamor had kind of died down a bit to the United States uh, aboard the Titanic. Well, I think they they actually... So the actual movie, I think, makes reference to him at one Mm -hmm. point. And he's in the movie. Some guy plays him in the movie. I don't know if they use his name because... But it, you know, he's in the, the. Oh yeah, he's mentioned in there. Yeah, oh, yeah, say because yep. he's in like the big lounge, or he's mm-hmm. in like the first class lounge. Yep. Well, he was he was a, a millionaire playboy. He was one of the richest men in in America at the time, not just on board the Titanic, and uh, had had built up his wealth. They owned, you know, the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, yeah. you know, in New York yep. City, and he had business interests in Montreal. So even when he was alive, he was no stranger to Plattsburgh. He would stay at the Fouquet House, which was the old hotel right, right across, across the, the street here. Wow, it's apartments okay. now. He would stay there. It was a very luxurious hotel at the time while he was waiting for connecting trains. That's uh, wild. Head up to Montreal. That's yep. so cool. Like I See, that's the kind of stuff that I like when you start researching the connect. Like I know there's a lot of uh, history with the presidents here. You know, like yes. how many presidents have been dropped off right here? Many, many presidents. Yeah. And uh, I think I saw something the other day that... Um, like Teddy Roosevelt found out he was going to be president in the Adirondacks, but mm-hmm. he was out hiking, and then was it Taft that got shot or something? And then he uh, McKinley, uh, McKinley, yep. yep, yeah, William McKinley, um, T.R. was up here in the North Country. Uh, he was actually in Vermont uh, when he received word that McKinley had been shot in Buffalo, and uh, at first it looked like he was going to pull through. They said, you know, we don't need you here; you can go back to to, to whatever it was you were doing. So he came back up. And he was at uh, the Tahas Club, which is down near Newcomb at the time, uh, hiking Mount Marcy, when the the word came that he had taken a turn for the worse, that McKinley was, you know, r- really not looking like he was going to pull through. So they sent an Adirondack guide running up the side of Mount Marcy to try and find Teddy Roosevelt and his party, located him. They came down the mountain and... Uh, Basically, they were kind of hemming and hawing about what they should do. And about midnight that night, Teddy Roosevelt decided he had enough of waiting. And they climbed into a coach and took off through the night. And they kind of call it the midnight ride of Teddy Roosevelt because it was a trip that was supposed to take about seven hours to get back to civilization. And I think they made it in four or five, just kind of changing out horses and carriages every so often so they could keep going it breakneck speed through the darkness and when he finally got to the train station uh which was basically the link to in, the in buffalo no in uh north creek 
Oh, okay. Okay. In North Creek, uh, he received a telegram there that he was already president. That he McKinley was already dead. That's wild. Yep. Yeah, it just it, well, I know um, people have talked about like the like how many presidents have stayed at that hotel, the Fouquet House. Well, let's see. You got uh, Chester Arthur, Benjamin Harrison. Um, who else? Because these are all guys like around the turn of the 1800s, like going right, going into like the early 1800s, into the 19, late, or late 18, 1800s, sorry, into the 1900s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, there was, there was three Fouquet houses there on that site. First two burned. The third one, which was built in 1865, is the one that we see today. It okay. opened a month after Lincoln was assassinated. Uh, so, wow. it, you know, and it was a spectacular looking building, four stories with wraparound porches. What's left today is kind of just the bottom two floors. Uh, it was, there was some work done on it in the 1950s. It took off the top two floors and it really doesn't look much like it did back in the day. Um, and there was spectacular gardens surrounding it. I mean, imagine that being your first glimpse of Plattsburgh after you get off a train or a steamboat yeah. and it was just see a the lake right there, yeah, just a magnificent hotel. And, uh, Benjamin Harrison gave a speech from the front balcony to about 2000 people that were gathered here in the intersection. Uh, Chester A. Arthur was there before he was a president uh, with the Delaware and Hudson Railroad. And uh, Martin Van Buren visited there when, when the, uh, the second Fouquet House was there. Um, so, yeah, quite, quite a few presidents. Um, so what, what was like the downtown area like? Before? So you had obviously the, the, the hotel, you had the station. Like what buildings were here and weren't here around that time? Like what, what did the landscape of like downtown Plattsburgh look like? It looked a lot different than it did today. Um, like, what percentage of the buildings were here at that point? Well, Plattsburgh, over the decades, suffered a lot of massive fires, which was common back then. I mean, when you think of, like, the Great Chicago Fire, somebody could tip over a lantern and half of the town goes up, you know, because of uh, uh, wooden buildings and, and you know, just Lack the, of water the, the flammability of everything, primitive firefighting equipment. So there really wasn't any way to tackle a big blaze like that. So once in 1849 and again in 1867, there were two great fires in Plattsburgh that burned about 70 buildings each time. Wow. Uh, you know, and imagine rebuilding from that after yeah, three quarters of downtown is burned. So coming back from that, most of downtown, except for a few areas, were consumed by the, the, the great fire of 1867. And we talk about that on some of the tours, because there's, there's still remnants of it today that you can that you can find, even you know 150 odd years later. Uh, like for instance, a lot of people might be familiar with uh, Protection Avenue or Protection yeah. Alley. Yeah, it's monopole. the alley where the monopole is. Oh, That's yeah. right. Most people they, they identify that with the monopole, but if you ever think about the name. Where does that name come from? The strange protection. Protection. Yeah, people would say, "Well, maybe you need protection. Go up there or something." You know, some, some, you know, insidious reference. But what it really is is in the wake of these gigantic fires that were so disastrous, caused millions and millions of dollars of damage back then. Um, the city established a series of volunteer fire companies that were stationed in kind of strategic locations around the city a town it was then, so that if a fire like that broke out, boom, they're right there, you know? And one of these fire companies was Protection Hose Company number five. And they were located right in downtown to protect downtown from the threat of fire. Their fire hall was right there in the alley. So the name 
stuck. And after all these years, it's still, even though the, the fire company is a yeah. long gone, and even the building where their fire hall was is, is long gone, the name is still there. It still tells the story. That's that's wild. And, and the station, has the station ever been hit by fire? Or no? Is this still pretty much? Because I've seen old photos. It looks very similar to what it was back then. Sure, sure. This was built in the 1880s, and it's pretty much the same today as it was then with, with very, very few changes over the years. Um, it, it's, it's one of the real kind of crown jewels of this neighborhood is, is this beautiful Victorian train station uh, that, that's kind of been preserved in its original state. It doesn't have any big additions or anything that have been put onto it. And it, it's really kind of a, a local landmark. There was two train stations on this spot. There was an earlier one that was built 1850s, I think, when the train, when the railroad first came through. And uh, this one replaced that one in the, in the 1880s. But the original one was one of the very first buildings in Plattsburgh to have electricity. And that was a big deal, really? you know, and, and people came from miles around to, to witness the marvel of electric light, you know, to come and look at the light bulbs in the train station. Oh, my God. So, so I mean, it's just wild because, again, I take it for granted because I'm here every day. And yeah, like, even sure. just listening to you tell the stories, I'm like, <laughs> this is probably the original what? Like it, oh, it definitely yeah, is. Yeah, which is like yep. crazy to think about. And I don't know what I probably should do more research on the building and like what was this wing of the building housed for? Like what were they doing here? Was it? Because again, the, the way the tr the station kind of runs, it filters down in the front, down to a main staircase. It goes down to the tracks. So, and there's like a, the old ticket window over there. So, my guess is that this was probably some restaurant or lounge or one of the two, or upstairs or whatever. Yeah, cafe, I, maybe. Sure. Yeah. Did, did they, they never had any like housing here? Did they? Like they had the hotel there, but no, there wasn't like places to stay or. Rooms. You know, I'm really not familiar with what the exact internal layout of the building was like. Yeah. Um, at home, we we have a huge reference archive that we use for our building, or our, our building for our uh, a business, and uh, you know, anytime and every time we've come across a local book, like in a in an antique shop or or a garage sale, something like that, we always add it to we call it the archive. So we've got dozens of books, and um, one of them is um, a thing that was put out during the restoration of this building, and it, it gives kind of these uh, blueprints. Of, of the reconstruction work. And it would probably say, if I studied that, what the layout originally was in here. Is that a book that you can buy, or is that just something? No, that it's something that came out when they were doing the renovations. Oh, so just you, um, you stumbled upon it. Yeah, yeah. I think it came from, our, our copy came from the Cornerstone Bookshop right here in downtown. Yeah. Um, Art, I'll do a, do a shout out to Art at the Cornerstone Bookshop. A anytime he kind of comes across uh, local books that he thinks would be of interest to the nice. to the archive, he kind of hangs on to them, puts them aside for us. Are, are you um, are you a speed reader? Can you read pretty fast? Pretty fast, yeah. Like so, that's the one thing. I'm like, so like Nicole that works here, she, I gave her a book to read. I'm like, can you read this book? I don't. It was like probably 150 pages, half hour. She came back. She's like, done. And I'm like, that blows my mind. I'm a slow reader. Like w Wendy, she's an English major, and she can you know warp speed through. These these amazingly thick books. It blows uh, my mind. Yeah, yeah, she can do it. I, I, me not so much. Like but. if you're, if I'm like I'm like one of those guys. If I if I have a minute a page, I'm doing well. Like yeah. that's just not good. Like, it's just not like a speed <laughs> reader at all. So I'm like, I got a page at 600 pages. I'm like, this is going to take some time here. I, like, I have to really digest it. Sometimes I go back and like reread sentences, like you know, and really let it sink in. Yeah, especially when you're like history, because it's like you got to. Like you said, you're, you're envisioning it in your mind and you're placing sure. things and, you're, and you want you're it like contextualizing you, it. Yeah. Sure. You want to like feel yourself and like kind of get the, like, I guess the spatial awareness of what yes. they're talking about. Yes. And that's from a his, historical point that seems 
like that's massive or like sometimes fictional books I read sure. I could read a little bit slower especially if there's not a lot of dialogue because I'm like really trying to like see what they're talking about because like sure. I, I was reading a book by um I haven't finished it I started reading it during a uh, COVID but it's yeah. uh, by John Steinbeck long, okay long sure. book and like trying to read the whole thing and it's like man there's just so much description to the book like you're talking like yeah. out of 600 plus pages that like 400 of them just seem like he's just describing stuff and it's maybe not that much but it's 200 maybe yeah sure just a lot of there's not a lot of so it's just it's tough but like even taking that has like cool historical accounts or just old oh, sure. english and like what they describe and well just it, something that kind of comes with the experiences that, that i've had and, and studying a lot of these old photographs of plattsburgh at length when I'll hear a description of a place or, or this happened at such and such a, a location, you know, my mind has really become kind of a Rolodex of, of what buildings were here and where that was. And, and it's just kind of trying to fit that information into the fabric of, yeah. you know, these, these mental maps that I have. So you uh, just keep layering on the information. Yeah, definitely. definitely. So, so the, the, uh, the five tours you have, I mean, in theory, you can still add to these tours. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah. if you just keep finding, like, wow, that we go great in that storyline, and just keep boom, add it, boom, add it, and just like, um, or like you said, maybe you have a couple minute walk between, and all of a sudden you find a story in that little gap. Could you stop and tell that little quick story? Maybe oh, it's sure. like a two minute little, just quick. Hey, here's this, like an FYI about this building, and then keep walking. Yeah. Well, some of these areas are so rich with, with the, the the depth of the past that they have in, in them that uh, sometimes you just have to for for time constraint purposes you have to pull some stories out put new stories in you know just just to keep things interesting too but uh, I, I always try to change it up because you couldn't possibly tell all these tales in in one sitting there's just so much in some of these areas well, i'm sure some of these buildings alone could take well over an hour or two just oh, to yeah. tell their sure, stories sure. um no I, I think that's fascinating so back to again has nothing really to do with, with plattsburgh but like you take something like the titanic how factual was that movie in your eyes? If you've done a lot of research on the Titanic, I know the movie and I know a few sure. things when that came out. Cause as a kid, like you'd learn about the Titanic and was it 1912, right? Yeah. April of 1912. April. So, um, so what was that like looking at that, like, or other historical, maybe movies that you've seen, like how much is really historically accurate in your mind coming kind of from a history background? Well, there's some, <laughs> You know, some Hollywood. In yeah, it. With, there's always some Hollywood stuff that's been done for dramatic effect, but that that's okay, as long as they've tried their best for you know. And there's a lot of attention to detail. You know, having the background that I have, especially you know, I, I've done a lot of reenacting and things like that, and you really start to pick to pick apart, especially the the dress. If there's a lot of attention to detail to the dress, but then there's sometimes there's things that are really glaring. You know, you can always tell if they have a good costumer who's well-versed in, in the time period they're trying to represent. Because if they don't get it right, it really looks bad. Um, like a lot of people will associate, for instance, I mean, this is this is getting into minutia, but you know, people associate the Revolutionary War with the, the, the tricorn hat. You know, mm-hmm. that's always the big thing. You got the tricorn hat. But if you're talking about the 1860s or the 1870s or the 18, or excuse me, the, the 1760s, 1770s, each one of those decades would have had a different variation of that hat. It's like styles that came and went. And if you were wearing the wrong iteration, you would have been out of fashion, you yeah. know, but people don't know that. They're just a tricorn hat is a tricorn hat. Yeah, because it was so, the French and Indian War. Wasn't that right before the Revolutionary War? Yes. So like that's, 
Um, I just remember like learning about that, but that was kind of like a prelude to, and the U.S. and Britain were on the same side in that one, right? They're fighting the French? Well, there was no U.S. at that time. We, we, we were all Brit British the colonies subjects. And, yeah. yeah, the British were... We were British subjects. We were, we were English, and uh, we were fighting the French during yeah. that period, and their Indian allies. I mean, there was Indian allies on both sides, but it gets called and the French. And then the tides Indian turned, because then the French supported us against uh, the Brit or Britain, right? And yes, they did. Well, the Britain and France had age-old hostilities going back, you know, centuries. So they, they had always been kind of at each other. So this was, the, the wars in North America were just kind of an extension of that. Well, isn't, aren't we one of the only areas in the, in the nation that had soldiers in every single U.S. battle? You would, you would have to think, right? Like, I think I read that stat one time from, like, the Revolutionary War. Like, I, I don't know if there was any wars prior to the French and Indian War. I mean, there might have been, like, small little, like... There's obviously always going to be conflict, but when you take like the Revolutionary War and then the next major battle that I know of was like the Civil War. I mean, maybe maybe not if you start talking about like the uh, you know Spanish American War and stuff mm -hmm. that's a little more southern. But if you start going through, like our generation has fought in almost every single war. Like you can't say the same about many places in the country, even no, not south. Not really, not really. I mean, maybe uh, you have like Boston and and you know New York and Pennsylvania were probably in that. Yeah. Well, t today is actually an interesting anniversary. We posted about it on our, on our Facebook page today. Today, September 30th, is the 25th anniversary of the closure of Plattsburgh Air Force Base. Today oh, wow. was the official closure date, September 30th, 1995. So 25 years ago. And when it closed, Plattsburgh Air Force Base was one of the oldest active duty military installations in the country. They had, there had been obviously an active military presence, a permanent military presence here since the war of 1812. Oh, well, yeah, I yep. guess so. Yeah. Um, so like what kind of, I mean, you start talking like, um, anything that's regarding like ghosts and, and like oh, stuff like what, yeah. like what, cause I've heard this, like, like the Valcor building was haunted and like you hear all these things when people talk about things are haunted. Like how much do you believe in ghosts how much do you think that it's more just like folklore and that these are just stories passed down and then they've been embellished to the point that people believe them or are you like no like there's first-hand accounts of the waiter at the valcor or i don't know if there was even a brewery before you know it wasn't a brewery but like at the whatever that used to be the barracks yep. like an old soldier or something like how, how true is that was that one where you're like i believe this 100 percent. i've seen enough accounts that this stuff is real or is part of this like you know what I just love the storytelling and I love that, you know, the, the, the story has been passed down and maybe it's, I don't think it's true, but I think it's like the story is true um, from the way people pass it down that it's, I like just telling people that and I like having it more as entertainment than I actually believe sure. it. Well, the, the way I look at it is I've never been dead before, so I can't really say yeah, for, yeah. <laughs> for certain, but uh, I like to keep an open mind. And from, from my personal point of view, with the amount of people that I've talked to over the years, I always think that there's too many stories and too many similar stories coming from people who would have no reason to make anything up or, or you know, people with, with a high degree of integrity, obviously, who would have, you know, who would look strange if they were just saying these things about experiences they've had. So for them to kind of come out of their comfort zone and bring you these stories, I think there's more to it than just saying, well, that person's crazy. I, th I think it's kind of pretentious to say, well, it, it, there's nothing to it because, you know, we, we don't know what's out there. So, um, so like the val I'm taking like talking like the stone barracks. Sure. That, that, that's, there's a storyline around that. that is there haunted, is. Right. 
The Old Stone Barracks is on our Ghosts of the Old Post tour, and I generally refer to that as one of the most haunted, well, most active, quote-unquote, build, <laughs> buildings in Plattsburgh as far as paranormal activity goes. Um, it doesn't matter who you talk to, whether it's the current staff, whether it's uh, military security police that used to patrol it when it was abandoned, or whether you go all the way back to when it was occupied the last time, which was in the 1950s and 60s, um, people have always had stories surrounding that building. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's, you can't just say, wow, you know, that person doesn't know what they're talking about, or all these groups of people are just having a mass hallucination or something. It's, uh, you know, there's got to be something to it. Because when you keep being told the same story over and over by people that have never met one another before, yeah. you know, there's got to be something to that. And the Stone Barracks is just one of those buildings where you get those stories that keep being told and retold. Um, one of the things I always strive to do is to present to my listeners and to my guests firsthand accounts that I have collected where I've actually personally interviewed the person where they've said, this is what I saw and this is what I heard. And you can take that with you know a grain of salt or what you want, but I find it hard to say to someone, "Nah, you didn't hear that. You didn't see that." Yeah. You know that they're saying, "This is what I saw. I wasn't asleep. I wasn't you know drunk. I was. This is what I saw. And this is what I heard." Like I've heard, I've heard stories from other people, and I don't think it was from them. They had heard the story sure, or whatever. Sure. And, and but there's some like crazy stuff when you talk about like are there people there? And someone still says it's haunted, and the the rooms there are haunted. And there's mm-hmm. a I don't know if a soldier or, or old like, you know, keeper or nurse or something that was there that would have been like still haunting these rooms that, you know, that have been rebuilt and remodeled. But it's, it's kind of funny to, when you hear people adamantly, like you said, like say stuff and whether they heard it and they believed it or they heard it as a kid and maybe it just stuck with them and like, well, I thought this was true, but maybe it was at a young, but then sure. I think there's a lot of elements to is there like things are haunted i think i like it's like aliens like yes i think both of them exist like sure. i think it's just weird because you have no reason to explain why it can't exist yeah. like well i've had people who were previously diehard skeptics and then they say well i had this experience and believe me this is what i saw so you know um i i, I think that that um it's it's hard to judge and it's it's, it's just a, a fascinating thing to to tap into when when you hear these people tell these tales like let's go back to the stone barracks for just a second one of the staff members told me when they first reopened uh and a lot of times in paranormal circles people claim that a building that does have some sort of a presence or or an occupant in it uh when they do reconstruction remodeling you start tearing into the walls sometimes that stirs things up for, for, you know, for, for a variety of reasons. Maybe they don't like you messing with their, you know, their place. Uh, they're, or they're just letting you know that they're around now that there's a, there's a human presence back in the place. Because you got to understand that the stone barracks, for example, that place was empty and sealed up and vacant for half a century, 50 years. It sat silent and alone and empty. And, uh, you know, it just makes you wonder if you were a fly on the wall, what was going on in there all boarded up late at night. Uh, but the base security personnel used to avoid it like the plague because even when the Air Force was here, it was widely regarded as a quote-unquote haunted house. You know, it, it, they didn't like to go near it. It was just creepy. And um, 
one of the staff members who works there or has worked there, I don't know if she still does, but she told me that when they were first reopening and they were remodeling the rooms of the inn portion, because mm-hmm. it's it's not just a, a brewery, it's also an inn. Yep. There's um, a number of, of rooms between the upstairs and downstairs where guests can stay. And she said one of the rooms, they, they kept it open so that if a prospective guest came in, they could walk them down the hallway and show them the room and say, oh, this is our rooms, this is what we have to offer. And she said she started taking people in that room, and for some reason, the door, the entrance door, would slowly start closing of its own accord. So she thought, well, that's kind of strange. Maybe there's a, a draft or something. And then it happened a couple of times. The door was open, and as soon as they'd walk in, she'd notice out of the corner of their eye, this door would slowly start creeping closed. She said, well, that's a little unnerving. So she apparently took one of those little blocks of wood, you know, those little wedges, and jammed it under the door in the open position. And the next time around, when she took some guests in that room, here's our rooms that we have to offer, she heard a noise. She heard... And she said the door was closing and pushing the wooden block across the floor. That's why. And they all saw it. And she said, okay, that's that's enough of that. <laughs> she kind of walked out and continued with the tour. But uh, she said that was that was kind of spooky. It's Well, yeah, I mean, you look at, uh, I just think the history of it. And, of course, you look at the building itself. I mean, it is... It's, it's in the middle of it's nowhere. It's spectacular. Yeah, though, I mean, it's that... beautiful. And it's just, but it's sitting in a big open field. So it's kind of like you said, if it had an element of, it's one thing if you're like walking down and it was like kind of in a bunch of buildings, it doesn't stand out, but it's literally right in the, I mean, you drive by and it's all by itself. And it kind of looks spooky just looking at yeah, it. Yeah. At one point, it did have buildings around it. Um, if you were to look at early maps, going back to the old maps, uh, before anything else was built, in that vicinity, all the buildings that are to the north mm-hmm. of it, all those brick buildings, stone buildings, everything on the oval, none of that was there. Plattsburgh Barracks was that building. That was it. Wow. There was that barracks, and there was an officer's quarters, like an L mm-hmm. on the end of it, and then there were stables, and, and uh, there was a fence all the way around the property, and the parade ground in the middle, and that was it. And it sat a good distance outside of town, and the city fathers were, pro- were, were okay with that because they didn't want the military guys in, you know, chasing their daughters and things, so that they were kind of kept on the outskirts of town, but that was it. That was Plattsburgh Barracks, kind of this lonely post on the shores of Lake Champlain. So, what? Give us like a, a top three. What is the m- three most haunted places in Plattsburgh? Mm. If you had to pick, maybe make it five. I don't know how many that you're like. <laughs> these are definitely like Stone Barracks, hundred percent Valcor. That is number one. That's right up there. That's definitely on, on the list. Um, it's definitely you know all of these stories really hold such high places in in, uh, in some of our tours. It's, it's hard to choose. Um, another one that I really like to talk about is the Lowell Mansion. That's a story that's always popular. And um, where's that located? Right over here on Macomb Street. It's 22 Macomb. It's a okay. huge Victorian mansion. Oh, the, the big one. The big, big one. Yes, that's I know right. what you're talking about. Yep. Yep. And that one definitely has a presence in it that has been described to me by multiple people, it's apartments. Mm-hmm. And people that have occupied those apartments over the years have always talked about, you know, the thing that they see out of the corner of their eye going up the stairs or, or you know, the shadow or something like that. Uh, that. That one seems to be pretty active as well. But 
That combined with the fact that it's such a fantastic backstory, that's that's one of my top picks too. And that's on the Beaumont tour. That's on the Dr. Beaumont tour. That's one of the highlights of that tour. I can give you a little bit of the background. Uh, the the house itself, um, you, you know, they they say that uh, they didn't build Rome in a day. You know, and that <laughs> Rome wasn't built in a day. And that house is very similar. The huge mansion that you see there today was built over the course of many, many, many years. In fact, the core of the house is much older. Uh, it goes all the way back to 1815, year after the Battle of Plattsburgh. Um, and back in those days, it was known as the Lowell Mansion because of its original owner, a guy named Samuel Lowell. And Mr. Lowell, according to the legend, was not particularly well-liked here in Plattsburgh. He was a newspaper man by trade, uh, but he was very good at starting up new newspapers, getting new business ventures going. He was kind of a mover and shaker, but he was also apparently very good at bankrupting the newspaper and never paying his money back. So he owed money to just about everybody in town. So as a punishment, his debts had gotten so bad, he becomes known as what they called a debtor back in those days. And he owed so much money to so many people that as a punishment, they forced him and his wife to live on the outskirts of town. It was called being on the outs. Oh, punishment okay. back then. And they weren't allowed to come back in until he had settled all his debts. Like you're cut off, you know, you, you don't get to benefit from the town because you, you know, you've, you've burned all these bridges. So he's out there and, um, uh, Battle of Plattsburgh comes, Battle of Plattsburgh goes, all the chaos and fighting. And the following year, 1815, he starts building this enormous mansion. So people started scratching their heads saying, hey, uh, wait a minute, weren't you that guy that, that owed everybody money, right? Well, according to the legend, according to the tale, Samuel Lowell's modest house where he was kind of living in exile up there on Boynton Avenue, which was the woods outside of the town back then, sat directly in the path of the British Army as they were advancing into Plattsburgh on September the 6th, 1814. Thousands and thousands of British troops. And Mr. Lowell, so it was said, ran for his life. I mean, anybody probably would do the same, except he escaped to the American lines, crossed the Saranac River by the skin of his teeth, but he left his wife behind to be captured by the British. <laughs> what, what, what a guy, right? Yeah. Geez. So his wife gets taken prisoner. What a gentleman. And sh the British officers took over his house where he was living on Boynton Avenue, and they used it as one of their headquarters. And supposedly for five days, poor Mrs. Lowell gets stuck cooking and entertaining the, the British officers that have put themselves in her, in her home. So somehow she's able to smuggle a note to her husband on the American side, and he opens it up. And it probably said, hey, uh, you're a jerk, <laughs> you know, but the British have hidden gold in our cellar. The British never thought in a million years that they were going to be stopped at Plattsburgh that with this juggernaut of troops that they had brought with them. They were going to mow through Plattsburgh like Niagara Falls and continue south, effectively cutting the United States in half. Well, it didn't quite turn out that way. But supposedly they had brought chests of gold and silver with them to pay the troops on this long march to the south. And wouldn't you just know it that the officers that took over Mr. Lowell's house were what was called the quartermasters. They were in charge of all the supplies and they had stashed the gold in his basement for safekeeping. On Boynton. On Boynton. 
And Mrs. Lowell communicated that to her husband. And he thought to himself, well, this is this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that's presented itself. He decides he's going to risk his own neck. Under cover of darkness, he makes his way back across the Saranac River through the enemy lines, undetected, and makes his way up to his house on Boynton Avenue. And with the help of his wife, who's already there inside, he's able to break into his cellar and make off with a keg, a small barrel filled with the British gold that he scoops out of the chest and he rolls it into the night, lit by the explosions and fire in the sky from the battle, and he dumps it down an old well, an abandoned well there on his property before making his escape back to the American side. And all he had to do was wait. After that point, he waited, and the British finally were defeated and retreated back to Canada, and all he had to do was descend down the well, recover his gold, and he used it to build that very house wow. right over here That's on Macomb wild. Street, right? But it gets even better. There's always a little twist. You know, there's, <laughs> there's always a little twist to the end of the story because he couldn't just leave it at that. It seems that after his exile and whatever, he, he had a bit of an ego, an ax to grind. He really wanted to make a statement, you know? So he built the home in the style of an English manor house, kind of like saying to the British, hey, look at me, I'm a lord with your money. Ha, 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 ha. Well... Some have said that that act of hubris, that, you know, that, that vanity, it had some unforeseen consequences. There are those that claim that on the anniversary of the Battle of Plattsburgh, to have witnessed an eerie, flickering glow emanating from the tower of the mansion. And some have said that that is the ghost of a British soldier with a lantern searching for their loot <laughs> from beyond the grave. That's wild. Yeah. That's yeah. Did he ever pay back anybody? Probably not. We don't know. We don't know that part of the story. Right, I'm assuming right. he did. He just but, wanted to upgrade the kitchen instead, right? Yeah, but <laughs> people uh, locally, boy, they, they weren't too impressed. They called it a most pretentious house that he had built, uh, and they called it Lowell's Castle and things like that, kind of derogatory. But yeah, he's, he's, uh, and he's buried over in Riverside Cemetery. Really? Yeah. So when you go see like these... Um, I guess who's buried in Plattsburgh? What names would, would people recognize? Or who who would be buried in these cemeteries that were that we don't even know? Like, are we talking like ex-generals? Are we talking like some bigwig people back in the day that might have some historical significance? Oh, sure. Uh, I, I love cemeteries because, you know, you know, everywhere we go on trips and things like that, I always want to go to the cemetery and see... Uh, who, who's buried there? Because it's always just a who's who of who, who built the community, you know? But also you get to see these incredible works of art that people don't realize, you know, statues and, and beautiful monuments yeah. and, and, and real, real works of art. And, and that was their original intention. I mean, these, these uh, cemeteries with their beautiful stones were meant to be, you know, status symbols. Some of them were even meant to be like public parks. But in, in any case, they're not really viewed that way now. Um, but we kind of try to revive that a little bit by bringing people in and showing them how amazing these places are, the stories. Here in Plattsburgh, um, one that comes to mind, we, we do tours in a lot of different locations, but uh, Riverside really kind of takes the cake as far as historical significance. It's, it's just a who's who of, who of the people that are buried there. All of the, the founders of Plattsburgh, you've got two of the three Platt brothers that are buried in there that came and founded the town. Uh, and uh, when they came up, from uh, the Poughkeepsie area, they had um, about 12 original founding families that came up with them that settled. They were the original pioneers of the area, and a lot of them are buried there. 
And if there's only 12 families, so they're all interrelated. They all married one another. What what, what were some of those names? Some of those names. Uh, Moors, you've got uh, um, Bailey, uh, Platt, of course, tons and tons of Platts. Uh, They all interrelated. But then, then the neat thing is, since the families married one another, you see the the last names getting getting used as first names. So, like, you've got one guy; his name is Platt Rogers, where that's being used as a first name, but he was related. It's it's really interesting to and, go to, and like Moors, like Moors, Moors Forks. Well, or different Moors, different Moors, uh, like M O O R E Moors, M O O E R S Moors. But they're different than the, the town of Moors. Yeah, that was M O O E R apostrophe s oh, okay and the apostrophe has been lost over the years you know but but uh benjamin moore's his house is the house with the cannonball in it stuck across the, the street here and, and that's which that's just down a little ways it's, it's uh on the corner of pike and bridge street right across from the campus corner restaurant there's a brick house on the yep. corner that was benjamin moore's home in fact there's a plaque on the side of it that says that this was the home of major general benjamin moore's and uh during the battle, excuse me, he was away on, you know, fighting the British, of course, and his home becomes the headquarters of the American army uh, during, during the siege of Plattsburgh. And the British had brought with them siege guns, huge cannons that were designed to just batter a city into submission. And they built seven artillery batteries on the opposite side of the Saranac River and just began blasting this whole neighborhood into the Stone Age. And General Moore's house was right smack in the middle of that barrage as the headquarters. Obviously, they knew the headquarters was there, so they just kept bombarding it. And one of the cannonballs fired by the Kentalord house, there was a battery there, British six-pounder, comes flying across the Saranac River, smashes through the house, and gets stuck in the wall. And it's still there, 200, 200 odd That's years wild. later. Uh, it, and he preserved it because when he returned home, he, he thought that that was neat. He thought that was a badge of honor that the house had survived the battle. So he like molded it right into the wall. He thought that was great. And it's been preserved there ever since. Uh, one, of the, one of the neat things though, uh, I'm always very, very appreciative of the folks that own that house because from time to time they let us take our guests in to actually see the cannonball itself. Uh, they've done a great job being custodians of that house. Oh, uh, so you can't see it, it from the, the external No, part it's, of that. it's in an inside wall because gotcha. uh, it smashed through the house. Imagine having a cannonball oh. coming through your house. So it just got lodged in the inside wall, so in it's it, protruding into the house. Um, it went through a couple of... It, through the exterior walls, it punched through, and then it, it finally ran out of inertia and smashed into an inside wall where it got stuck. And that's where it oh, still so it's is. Oh, it's not even on the exterior walls. No. Like, it's like some place in the middle of the house. It's in a hallway in the, in the, in the foyer. <laughs> just, and, and the people are fine. They're like, they love that. They love it. They love it. That's great. And uh, they've done their best to preserve it. And the neatest thing to me, though, back in the 1970s, the building is several apartments now. It's been broken up. It's not a single-family home. Back in the 1970s, they're doing some remodeling, right? They're breaking the house up and, and putting in walls and taking out walls. They're doing some remodeling there in the foyer and they uncovered the hole in the other side of the hallway where it smashed through the house 200 wow. years earlier and it was stuffed with newspapers dated the week after the Battle of Plattsburgh. So they stuffed the holes full of paper and sealed it up. For and insulation. For insulation. Yeah. Wow. And the family preserve them they still have those papers today they put them in a piece of plexiglass and i've seen them it's just amazing amazing that's crazy so that's what what was the paper called back then 
Uh, th- their their particular copy, it's not a local paper. Okay. Uh, the Plattsburgh had the Plattsburgh Republican back then. I mean, they, then later on they they merged with the Plattsburgh Press, so it's, we have the Press Republican. It's oh, still, that's cool. Still yeah. the same lineage, uh, but back then it was the 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 Republican. And later on, there was a newspaper called the Plattsburgh Sentinel. That was another one. So is that, um, and I'm sure you have stories just from like printing, like, I mean, just like paper and stuff like that, like the different papers and different publications back in the day and oh, yeah. what role they played. And Oh yeah. Um, that was your mass media, your, yeah. your, your Facebook of the day, you know, anything and everything that was fit to print and some that wasn't was, was printed. You know, you look at the old newspapers and it was every little detail of who's visiting who and uh, so-and-so is here in town visiting their cousin. You know, it gives all the gossip. It, it's great. That's why wow. I, I don't, I, I love this stuff. And, and, Again, to be to be fair on time because I think we could talk for like five more hours. Your story, like your stories, are just incredible. It's um, great. The so, where can people find you? Obviously, this year's a little different, but sure. normal years. Kind of give a plug as to where you like where they can find you, what to expect, what stories that you are telling. Maybe I don't know what what 2021, 2022 ghost tour looks like. Like you like. Do you have like a, maybe a little hint of a new story you want to develop or a new area or um, I guess how they can support you or what, what you're doing? So kind of like just plug all the information you can about everything Ghost Tours. Sure, sure. Um, well, because of the obviously the COVID-19 pandemic, that kind of put a damper on 2020. Uh, and, you know, our, our safety is always our number one priority, as I already said. So and that includes the safety of our, our community at large. So we decided to kind of forego in-person tours, at least for the first part of this season. We've thought since things seem to be a little more under control now that maybe we could do some standalone events as we get closer to Halloween, maybe a, a tour or two, just, you know, and do the, the social distancing and, and, and see how it goes. But we're kind of like revising from week to week um, and, and, and seeing what, what we want to do as a plan. Next year, hopefully things will be a little more, you know, closer to, to, to normalcy than they have been this year. But if people want to check out our Facebook page, uh, all you have to do is, is uh, Google um, Plattsburgh Ghost Tours and it'll pop right up there. Uh, even if you don't have Facebook, you can still find it. We do a photo of the day every single day on our Facebook page. And um, uh, we, we post, you know, vintage photos of Plattsburgh with great stories uh, from kind of our, our, our archives we even, um, back during the Battle of Plattsburgh celebration a few weeks back, early September, we did a special kind of a virtual tour where I did a, a, a presentation using a, a drone and, and using that kind of technology, uh, telling the story of the midnight raid of Captain McGlasson, which is another kind of <laughs> untold story of the Battle of Plattsburgh that's really hair-raising, hair and most people have no idea that ever happened. So we did a, a virtual presentation of that with, you know, sound effects and, and, and photographs and, and a, a great narration. So if people want to check that out, that's posted right at the top of our page. Uh, that, that's right there. And um, there's also a link if, of course, they wanted to leave a, a, a gratuity for our staff or anything of that nature. Uh, there, there's one of those there, too, as well. So um, and, and again, if, you know, Hopefully next year things are back up and running. But I, I just think I, I like highlighting people we talked about before you came on. Like I like highlighting different things in the community. Sure. I'm a big like proponent of, of you know, the Plattsburgh and the greater North Country area and just kind of the cool things that people are doing. Absolutely. But I, I think like you, a small business, 
telling the history kind of you're talking about originally with like some of the kids that like growing up here me included that didn't know this history existed and it happened sure. hundreds and hundreds of years ago and it's just kind of cool to bring it to the forefront and I think probably a pretty um, digestible way. Like I think you have fun doing it, and sure. you're obviously passionate about it, and you know can add the element of uh, you know humor and and you know I think people walking on the grounds and then knowing the buildings and knowing the names and knowing like you know this building was at that location. Like oh yeah, you know sure. exactly what you're talking sure. about. So people people they 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 should have so much pride in the area that we call home because it really is a special place, and. Uh, the, the, the more that we can do to be uh, ambassadors of that, the better, because we, we love to uh, see people kind of gain that, that appreciation for, for our home. You know, it's really an incredible place to live. Yeah. No, I think, I think it's great. I, I think uh, what you're doing is awesome. I, I look forward to going on um, hopefully a few of the tours next year. I told, I, told, I literally told my wife like a week ago, cause I told you you were coming on and she was so excited. Of course she's, <laughs> um, but she was like, saying like, well, let's go, we'll go to one. And I wasn't sure if you were doing it. So I said, well, I'll ask him when he comes on, if they're still actively doing them right now or sure. not. But um, next year I'd like to do it. And then it, now kids, are kids welcome on a lot of these? Oh or? yeah, we've had, uh, a lot of people are hesitant. We say, oh, my, my son or daughter really doesn't like scary stuff. Well, th- there's nothing that jumps out like a haunted house or nothing that we have planned anyway. Yeah. But uh, we've had children from, you know, stroller age right on up to senior citizens. So it's, it's really yeah. uh, family friendly. We, we like to make make it appeal and interesting to just about everybody. No, that's awesome. So what? Um, so if anybody wants to check them out, again, check them out on Facebook. We'll put some uh, links in the uh, the show notes and stuff so people can try to find you. But Absolutely. Uh, Matt, I appreciate you coming on. Oh, it's my uh, pleasure. Yeah, this is great. I could listen to you for hours. I love history, <laughs> especially local history. I think as cool as it gets. So um, so that is it. That is episode, what we say, 93 of the Galen Trombley Show. Thanks for listening to the Galen Trombley Show. If you want to reach me, you can go on Facebook at Galen Trombley, on Instagram at Galen Trombley, and on YouTube at Galen Trombley. The spelling, G-A-E-L-A-N-T-R-O-M-B-L-E-Y.